0: issues sensitively, rather than avoiding them because we're afraid, I don't like to avoid things, we need to learn to address them with sensitivity and with the spirit. So when we get to positions in the class where you can make comments and things, I'm going to invite you to remember that, to please make comments in the light of the Holy Ghost and think about what you're going to say so that we don't offend anyone. Uh, that is not what I want to have happen. What I want to have happen is that you're edified, instructed, and that you're excited about what I'm going to share with you um, today. So please help me with that and help invite the Spirit and uh, be conscious of, of sensitivity. So let's um, bring you in here. Um, I'm going to jump you into Second Nephi 5, which puts us at a place in the Book of Mormon where... Lehi's family has arrived in the Americas. So I'm going to give you a little uh, bit of a date. We're not sure it always exactly on date, but we can speculate. Um, they went to Jerusalem about 600 BC, so we're looking at about Stand 11 up. years it's in. You lot easier. Know, they spent eight years in the wilderness and then potentially a couple on the ocean. So we arrived in the Americas right around there. Thank you. Sometime after they arrived, Christ going pass away, so we're going to be looking at the chapters that he gives before he dies. Uh, we're not sure how soon this happens, but the Book of Mormon itself kind of implies that he is not on the Americas for too long of a time, and once he dies, as you know, Laman and Leviel and Nephi have not always gotten along, and once the, the father figure passes away, we're going to have some arguments about who's going to be in charge. So if you will all come to Second Nephi 5, we'll just show you uh, some of the verses there. I don't want to read all of these, but I do just want to give you the context so that we understand where we're at in the Book of Mormon. And so we'll just have you look at verse 3 of chapter 5. They, Laman and Lemuel, did a murmur against me, saying, Our younger brother thinks to rule over us, and we have had much trial because of him. Wherefore now let us slay him. That we may not be afflicted more because of his words. For behold, we will not have him to be our ruler. For it belongs to us who are the elder brethren to rule over this people. So here's our contest, here's our uh, contention, and Laman and as the elder brothers are refusing to accept Nephi as the leader. So this is going to set us up for the problems we're going to have. Now I'm just using a relational map. Please don't assume this is telling you anywhere where Book of Roman lands are. We don't know that, okay. But what this does is allow us to understand where things are in relation to each other so you have a better idea of what's going on. And this is just a helpful map. If we assume that our family landed together somewhere in the southern portion of the land, here's our land of first inheritance where they are when Lehi is alive. And then, um, as you're gonna see, Nephi has to move. And so, where does he go? He goes a little way further north and establishes the land of Nephi, Shion, those kind of areas. Um, As you read chapter five, you'll see there's a temple there. They're living the commandments. They live after the manner of happiness. And they're just trying to establish themselves in a new place after the contention. So that'll just give you a little visual of kind of what we're talking about. Um, contextually. Now, I would like you all to come in chapter 5 to verses 20-22. through 22. I'm going to give you just a couple minutes to read them carefully. And I'm going to give you an assignment of what you're looking for. Okay? Scripture study techniques, when you have a particular question in mind, you're always getting more out of your scripture study. So, I'm going to give you an assignment to find four different things that happen to lay in the after Nephi departs. So go ahead and read those verses to yourself and see if you can identify them when you, if you're a marker, you can mark in your scriptures or underline in your electronic one, what you find and I'll have you tell me them when you see them, so go ahead and read. Okay. Can I just someone out there who thinks they found all four of them be willing to just tell us. And that's as loud as you can. I will repeat them so the rest of you can hear. i to the words. Okay. Um, they're cut off from the presence of the Lord, Good. Cursed, yes. They, the they do, but we're going to add one more to that. Anyone give us one more we can add? This is one no one ever wants to say. Yes. Here we are. And then, here we are. So these are four different things, and I'm gonna uh, suggest to you that you keep them as four different things and not conflate them into one thing. When we mush them all together, that's when we tend to get in trouble. So we're gonna examine each one of these and try and help you understand from a particular viewpoint what might be going on here, okay? So, some of you might apply a modern day lens This is very common to read this from a 19th century point of view, that we're doing some racial profiling here. And I uh, reject that reading utterly. I don't believe that's what's happening in this text, and I need to help you understand that so you can go, yeah, uh, this is an ancient text, this is not a 19th century text, and so we need to help you see it from Nephi's point of view. Now I'd like to teach you some scripture study techniques as we're going along. Hopefully you've seen the one of asking a question as you read verses, it's more helpful. But I'm gonna give you some more from some experts. This is Jonah Feeling Smith, who says it is wrong to take one passage of scripture and isolate it. So as a scripture student, you've gotta to learn to use more resources than just looking at one verse all by itself. And you also need to learn to look at teachings on that subject from a wide variety of sources and bring together everything that we can on a subject so we understand it. He then uses an analogy of a photograph. We have cameras out there, you guys take pictures of stuff all the time. He says, if you would focus all of your rays of light on the subject, we need to have all of them. If we only have some of our light, we get a blurred picture. So, when you study the scriptures, we need you to learn to be good at finding as much stuff as you can find about what you're studying, and you'll get a clearer picture of what you're dealing with. You also need to learn to use authority. Obviously, we have prophetic authority we'd like you to use, but there's also a nice authority that comes by using some academic research, some good academic research. Not only academic research is good, okay? So you have to learn to distinguish, but when you bring everything in together, and we can get a much clearer picture of what we're dealing with here. So that's what I want to do today, is uh, help you use prophetic authority and some academic research to understand these passages. So I need to introduce you to a word that some of you may know, some of you may not. This word is exegesis, and it's a way of approaching ancient texts. It's what biblical scholars do. And what we're going to do is we're going to take historical, literary, and theological approaches to a text, And we're going to try to determine what the author actually meant in his or her day, not our day. So we're trying to get in the mind of the person who wrote the text and try to understand how the original audience would have understood what the person said so that we can then appreciate it and not misinterpret it with a modern-day understanding. So we're going to try and do this with these passages today with exegesis to teach you how to back up a little bit and use all of Nephi's writings to understand his viewpoint. So I'm just going to walk you through really quickly all of First Nephi and all of Second Nephi uh, in a two minutes <laughs> to help you see what lens is Nephi writing from, what's on his mind, what's in his head, what's his perspective, how's he looking at this? And I'm going to argue that what's on his mind is covenants. And then we're going to read the text from a covenant point of view, and suddenly, I hope, you'll go, oh, this is really great, and not something I need to be offended by or confused by. So, how can we tell that covenants are on Nephi's mind? Let's look at 1 Nephi. Most of you have read 1 Nephi more than any other thing, right? <laughs> I know you well. You start studying your scriptures, you're going to do it every day, and you read 1 Nephi, then you hit 2 Nephi, Isaiah. And you stop. Then you feel guilty and you go back to the start. (laughs) So you just keep reading 1 Nephi over and over and over. So hopefully you know there are six stories, six big stories in 1 Nephi. And they're all about people keeping their covenants. So let me remind you of the stories. Here they are. As you're looking at them, be thinking about what happened. And you'll be like, yeah, this is about keeping covenants with Jehovah. This is about keeping covenants to get the brass plates. And this is about working together, not rebelling, to get a family to come keep covenants. And this is about uh, not giving up on God when we're starving. <laughs> and Nephi's the only one that keeps the covenant at the moment of that story. And then we're going to build a ship and keep our covenants and get revelation. And then we're having another rebellion. You get the idea. Notice, who is the main covenant keeper in all of these stories? Nephi. Okay. His brothers are often not the covenant keepers, but sometimes they are. They have little moments back and forth. Sometimes Lehi has a moment. But largely, Nephi's trying to teach you about people who keep covenants and people who don't. So already we can tell covenants are on his mind. Then we hit 2 Nephi. This is the part that's hard for you. Because he jumps into covenants with Israel, and he uses Isaiah to teach you about them, and suddenly you go, oh my gosh, I don't know what he's talking about. But it's all about the Lehi's family and their place in their covenant destiny. So what I'm going to show you is the first chapters of Second Nephi, he actually outlines the covenant with Lehi's family, and then he places it inside the house of Israel and puts you to tears with 16 chapters of Isaiah. To help you understand covenants largely. So, first and second Nephi exegetically is all about covenants. So that is the lens we need to use when we read chapter 5. Now, prior to chapter 5 from 2 Nephi 1 to 5, we see the covenant outlined in a suzerainty treaty format. So those of you that have never heard of that before, biblical scholars discovered it in the 1950s as they were researching, and they discovered all these documents that were not religious, that were all about covenants between nations and tribes and groups. And they noticed a common structure. And then they went and read the Bible and went, oh, (laughs) the Bible is written in this structure. This is really cool that the culture of the time the Lord is using as he's setting up covenants. Mm -hmm. So suzerainty treaties are very common in the Middle East. Lehi's family was very familiar with them, and Nephi actually structures the one he's gonna tell you about in this format. So what is this? A suzerain is the superpower. He's the person in the covenant that has all the armies and all the power and all the money. Those are the people you want as your allies. So those are the suzerains. They set the terms of an agreement with a vassal who's the weaker person. These are the ones that have no armies and no money and no resources and need to be protected So we enter covenants so we can have a happy relationship. God is the suzerain in the law of Moses. Israel is the vassal. And as the weak remember, the vassal cannot change the covenant. They can only agree to what the suzerain offers. And if they don't like it, all they can do is break it. They don't get to change it. So this is the law of Moses. All of this is through the Old Testament. Those of you that have studied that will be like, yeah, there it is. And uh, it's in the Book of Mormon as well, as I'm going to show you. Okay, so come to 2 Nephi chapter 1. I'm just going to show you these. We're not going to read them, just for the sake of time. If you come to chapter 1, you'll see what we call a preamble. In all suzerainty treaties, they start with a preamble. They identify who is the covenant parties, where they are, and they talk about the superior power of the suzerain. And you'll see that right at the beginning with God doing all these wonderful things uh, for the Nephites. Then we have a historical prologue where you review the past relationship between the two parties. And again, you highlight the superiority of the suzerain and how good he's been. And you might even mention how bad we've been. Okay? And you'll see Laman and Lemuel's rebellions coming up there uh, on the water. Then we jump into what is this covenant going to be? We're going to give you the stipulations, and I will show you those in just a minute when we're done looking at the whole covenant. But this is what we're promising to do. Then, as you keep reading chapter 1, you come to the blessings and cursing section. This is where, if I keep the covenant, the suzerain will bless me with the following things. This is to motivate me to keep my covenant with the good things. If I decide not to keep my covenant, there's going to be consequences. The suzerain can then come after me. <laughs> and he will outline what that's going to be like so that I know. And so when I agree to this agreement, I'm not being surprised by blessings or cursings. I know what's coming. And then we have a list of witnesses all the way from chapter 1 through chapter 4. You have all of three descendants there. And they're witnessing the, the review of this covenant. And then we have Ephi writing it all down. And telling you in an earlier chapter that the small plates are for the teaching of the spiritual things of his people so they can remember the covenant over and over and over. So the suzerainty treaty is here, plain as day, and Nephi is showing you that. Now here's the stipulations of the covenant. As you read chapter 1, this is what you'll see. The suzerain, Jehovah, is going to protect this land as a land of liberty for their whole family if they will support the prophet, they will keep the commandments, and they will strive to be united. You all know that Zion is a united society. We're trying to achieve that. Whenever we have a relationship with God, having unity is part of that. And so, Le- Lehi's sons, here we are. Here's our covenant. Okay. And this is what we're agreeing to. We'll have blessings if we keep it. We'll have cursings if we don't. And we're going to agree to this. So hopefully I've convinced you now. Covenants are on Nephi's mind all the way through, especially 2 Nephi's early chapters setting this up. Why would he care about covenants? Well, I hope you know why he would care. Look at this. The immortality, the eternal life of man is brought about through covenants. That's how God works in all dispensations. He invites us to come out of the world and into his world through covenants. That's why Nephi is so obsessed with them. That's why you need to be focused on them. That's why our prophet keeps talking about the covenant path. This is how we get back to God, how we become exalted. And Nephi is focused on that. That's what the Book of Mormon does. bring you to Christ through covenants. Okay? So now that we have a covenant lens, we can go back and look at these and say, Nephi's looking at it through covenants. So this is not a 19th century racial profiling. <laughs> this is about covenants. So how can the covenant lens help me understand what he sees happening to Laman and Leal? So I'm going to pick these apart for you. We'll start with what the cutoff means. Now, as I taught you about suzerainty treaties, There's legal language for treaties that is used differently than common language. Any of you that have ever signed a contract, you know this. You can't even understand it, (laughs) because they're using normal words in this weird legal way, and it doesn't make sense, but you put your name on the bottom anyway, and hope it doesn't come back to get you. (laughs) So when we jump into a suzerainty treaty and we look at the language that's in there, we need to realize it's a legal understanding. So, biblical scholars who've examined these treaties have discovered this legal language. One of the words that means something else is rebel. Rebel doesn't just mean to resist. It means I'm going to break my covenant. Those of you that know, the Lord prophesied that Laman and Lemuel, if they rebelled, would be cut off. This is the ending of a covenant. Clear back in 1 Nephi chapter 2, you'll see that, and it's going to happen here. And when the Lord then uses the word "cut off," it's the official ending of a covenant. Mm. So this isn't Heavenly Father picking on anyone; it's just Him acknowledging in legal language that the covenant is over. And it's never Him that ends the covenant; it's always us. So Laman and Lemuel, right here, are choosing to break the covenant by rejecting the person who represents it. It's official. So there's no picking on anyone. This isn't a racial thing. It's you wanted to keep the covenant initially, now you don't. You're free to end it, but if you end it, our relationship is over, okay? So that one, really easy to do with the lingual language of the uh, treaty. Now, remember, With God, he's always merciful. The beautiful thing is I can end a covenant, but I can also re-engage it by repenting whenever I want. So the invitation from Jehovah is always there. His arms are always open. Please come back and re-engage if you decide to. Layman and Lemuel have that opportunity if they want it. They don't always have to be cut off, but it's up to them. It's an agency moment, okay? Alright, so we've got your cut off, now we need to look at cursing. Instead of turning this into some weird thing that we don't understand, you now have a treaty that you have that outlines what the curses are going to be. So this is legal, it's transparent, it's not God going after somebody unjustly. It's all about the penalties you agree to are now going to apply because you broke the covenant. So let's remind you, here they all are in 2 Nephi 1, what the penalties were going to be. First of all, the land isn't going to work the way you'd like it to always. You might have trouble with the weather. You might have trouble with the soil not being productive. You might have trouble hunting and not finding what you need. I'm not going to help you prosper. You'll just have to deal with whatever you've got. Other nations are also going to come and attack you. And try and take your lands of inheritance. Okay, that's part of the loss of the spiritual protection of the Lord. And then, because of all this stuff, there's not going to be the revenge thing. You take away my land, I'm going to take away your land. Okay? And suddenly we have warfare, hatred, captivity to the devil and his contention because we're losing the spirit. And now you can see the penalties actually really make sense. Uh, picking on anyone. We're uh, doing what would be normal if we don't want the Lord's help. Okay? So Laman and Emmanuel are receiving the curses from the breaking of the covenant. They're all available to see. There's no sneaking around behind the back or surprising anyone with anything here. Okay? They come to Laman and Emmanuel. Laman and Emmanuel will also participate in doing this to other people because they're losing the spirit. That makes us contentious. And you know the Book of Mormon, they're attacking people quite often Uh, with that. So cursing fits right in with the covenant really well. Now, as you know, we have the consequences of a stipulated covenant. Those are the ones I've just shown you. But when I don't want to follow the prophet, I'm going to have some other consequences that are natural. Those of you that know, Nephi left, and he tells you what he took, Look at what he took, the plates, the liahona, sort of Laban, the priesthood authority, the right to build a temple and know how to run it, and the ability to call priests to staff it. I'm going to take the records that are going to help with reading, writing, and language. And then Nephi's very talented. He's done all the metal work so far, and then he learned how to build a boat, right? So he's got all the skills to help the society establish itself, and he took it all way. So can you all come with me to first, second uh, Nephi 5.21? Let me just read you the beginning of this. Of course the Lord causes the curse to come upon them, that's the treaty curses, yea, even a sore cursing because of their iniquity. Look at both of those. Can you see why Nephi would describe this as a sore cursing? This is rough. Laman and Lemuel have chosen this. Okay, as natural consequences of not wanting Nephi to be in charge. Now I need you to jump down and look at verse 23. And cursed shall be the seed of him that mixeth with their seed, that one. They shall be cursed even with the same cursing. This is not genetic. If I'm born into this society, guess what? This is what I am born into. No one's picking on me. My parents have made some choices. This is how I grew up, and of course the consequences are going to affect me, even though I didn't choose them. That's what happens with all children. Their parents' choices affect them. So we don't have to read this genetically at all. This is all about consequences. Now Heavenly Father is merciful. He knows that the rising generation is not responsible for breaking the covenant. So that's how come the whole Book of Mormon is full of messages of mercy to the Lamanites. All of you, really fast, come to Alma 9. I just want to look at one of them. It's a beautiful one, where the Lord acknowledges that children are not responsible for the sins of the parents. Even though they will experience the consequences, He's going to make it up to them. Okay, so everybody come over there. I'm just going to read a couple things out of 16 and 17 for you. For there are many promises which are extended to the Lamanites. Why? It's because of the traditions of their fathers that cause them to remain in their state of ignorance. Therefore the Lord will be merciful unto them and prolong their existence in the land. And at some period of time they will be brought to believe in the word and to know the incorrectness of the traditions of their fathers. And many of them will be saved. For the Lord will be merciful unto them. All who call on his name. The Lord is compensating those kids. He knows it's not their fault, and he will provide a way for them to enter the covenant on their own when they're ready for it. And you guys know when is the most successful missionary labors in the Book of Mormon? Right now. Right during this time of yeah. Yes, that's when we have the Sons of Mosiah finally having some success, but it took several generations. To get people who are willing to listen because the traditions were really restricting, okay? So please see Jehovah as the merciful suzerain he is. He's not punishing anyone unjustly here, and he's working with those who are not responsible very well, okay? Now we hit the troubling one, okay? What is this skin of blackness? So what I'm gonna invite you to do is realize there's lots of ways of interpreting color in the scriptures. Brent Gardner's done a nice job of telling us that we can make those associations in several ways. We can take it literally, we can take it metaphorically, but he made his comment in 2007. Since then, we've had more research done, more things published, and we can now also offer you another argument, which I'll show you a, a sample of today, of self-inflicted. Okay, so literal reading Metaphorical reading, or we're going to introduce you to maybe this has something to do with what I do to myself, okay? Now, in the past, the skin of blackness has largely been interpreted racially. Here are the main arguments that have been argued in past books and articles. Excuse me, articles and things. I don't want to spend a lot of time on these. I just want to show you them so you'll just be aware of what's been out there in the past. Here they all are. We've got a marriage option, we have Nephi being wrong, (laughs) we have um, the the suntan thing going on, and you have all sorts of racial potential readings here. And these have been around for a long time, but I want to show you today what to do with them, okay? And this is coming from a modern-day statement by our prophet. It's in the Race and Priesthood essay. It says, today the church disavows the theories advanced in the past that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse or that it reflects unrighteous actions in a pre-mortal life, that mixed race marriages are a sin, or that blacks or people of any other race or ethnicity are inferior in any way to anyone else. Church leaders today unequivocally condemn all racism, past and present, in any form. Can someone just quickly help me? What does that word mean? shut it out. What is it? Anybody know? Move away from reject. You can't get a stronger word than this. Actually, here it is. To deny support for, to refuse to acknowledge. Reject will work really well. Can I invite all of you to stop accepting racial readings? According to our leaders, they are not acceptable. All those ones I showed you, No. So we have to give you better answers than that, thank goodness. And I hope to give you a possibility today that I think works really well inside the covenant. So please reject these. Please stop teaching racial readings. We just don't support that, okay, anymore. So I've been teaching you, if Nephi is using a covenant lens, that he has to be giving us something from a covenant point of view, and it must be related to the covenant. So what I'm gonna do is go back to the stipulations, and I'm gonna look at them and say, how does this fit? We already know we've gotten rid of the prophet. That's what cut off our covenant. But we've got a couple of other things that might work. So where else can I go to understand this? Everybody go to Alma 3. And let's have a look at that. Now, I normally have all my class read scriptures for me, but because we want you to hear, I'm the only one that has a mic. (laughs) So I apologize, I don't normally do all the reading. Um, I normally will have you take over. But just so everyone can hear, everyone come to verse 14. Here is a direct quote. This is not a paraphrase. This is writing down what the Lord said. Thus the word of God is fulfilled, for these are the words of which he said to Nephi. Behold, the Lamanites have I cursed. We already know that. Okay, so don't mix those in. We know where the curses are coming from and why there's the treaty. And I will set a mark on them that they and their seed may be separated from thee and thy seed from this time henceforth and forever. Now remember, we can always come back to the covenant if I want to repent, I can come back. So what did, what did that tell you? What's the mark supposed to do? Separate. Separate. Now which one of these... Is related to separation. See. See? Right here. They're supposed to be united. They don't want to be. So now we're going to provide a way for them to separate and be no longer united. So this is our connection to the covenant. And I also want you to notice these words. These are very soft. That they may be separated. Suggests so the Lord recognizes Laman Lemuel and Lemuel's desires to be autonomous they don't want to be ruled over by Nephi and the Lord lets us choose so he's not going to force them to be so if that's what they want we'll provide a way for them to be separated to honor both their agency and their desire so now we focus on Laman and Lemuel having a desire to be separated go back to 2 Nephi 5 once again look at verse 3 Remember, who is it that wanted to be autonomous, that didn't want to be unified? And we read this to you earlier. It's Laman and Lemuel. They're the ones that want to kill Nephi. Nephi doesn't want to kill them. In fact, Nephi doesn't even want to leave. <laughs> so it's Laban and Lemuel who want to be separated, not Nephi. And then when you turn your page over and you look at verse 21... Nephi tells you they have hard hearts. Hard hearts don't blend well with other people. Okay, hard doesn't mix. And you also see he uses an analogy that's quite powerful. It's flint. Any of you have ever done any camping? Flint is very hard rock. Doesn't unify well with other substances. But what it does do when you strike it, it creates sparks so you can light your fire. So look at what Nephi is trying to tell you about laying the limb using this analogy. They don't want to unify. All they want to do is contend they're the ones that want to be separate. This is a desire of theirs, not mine. So how are we going to explain what goes on here? I'm going to offer to you that they chose to mark themselves as separate people Mm -hmm. by using the process of tattooing. Okay, so that everyone would know when you're looking at them that they're not part of those knee fights. Okay, we're different. And we need to show that we're different, and we're gonna pick a way to be different. Let me just show you what happens with tattooing across the world. Some of you might not know its history, it's quite fascinating. The oldest mummy we have is very old. Here's a picture. I'm sorry the resolution's not great on here, but here's a picture of the mummy's arm. And this black stuff here is the tattooing. Uh, They tell me, I have trouble seeing these pictures there, but the experts tell me that one of these is a sheep Mm. and the other one is a bull. Mm. (laughs) But this image is totally not going to help you, but uh, you can get on the internet and go have a look at it. Uh, But this is our earliest tattoo. We can actually trace global tattooing um, all the way back to 3200 BC. These are more of the Egyptian mummies, the the, the 500 level ones. But we can find tattooing all the way around the earth as old as 3200 BC. And we can certainly find it in pre Columbian America, all over North and South America. It's everywhere tattooing. So we know that Laban and Lino and the sons of Lehi didn't move into a continent that was empty. We know there were other people around who probably knew how to do this and probably introduced the Nephites to the practice and what a great way to mark yourself, to stand out, Mm -hmm. to be different. Now I wanna show you how well the pre-Columbian tattooing practices and why they were doing it match up with what's in the text of the Book of Mormon. So first of all, tattooing back then was very laborious. They used little needles and soot from their fires and they poke you and introduce the soot under your skin. It's obviously very time-consuming, painful, and dangerous. It introduces infections into your skin. You can be very ill, you can be permanently maimed, or it can kill you. So when you read Alma 3, 6 through 7, and the Nephites describe the skin of blackness as a curse, you can see why. It's taking the lives of the people they know or maiming them, or making them very sick. In Hebrew culture, any of those things is a curse from God, okay, that you somehow are out of favor with him if you're sick and maimed or killed. So it fits really nicely with the way they're describing it. Now, tattoos in these cultures were often used to mark both men and women, remember we're uh, putting these on the Ishmaelites women, as well as the men, as belonging to a specific group. Oh. or a tribe, or a genealogical line. That, that fits really well with why the Lamanites are having this. Tattoos are often um, used there when you join a new group. You ever wonder why the Nephite dissenters suddenly become Lamanites and how you know that? Well, you would suddenly get the tattoo to indicate I'm no longer a Nephite. I am now a Lamanite, and everyone can tell because I've adopted their signs. Tattoos were also given to people at important life events, such as Mm births. Lamanites may have been tattooing their children from very small age, Mm -hmm. or you can get them when you get puberty, or when you get married, which the text is quite supportive of. And as you know, the Lamanites exceed in their skills, the hunting, the scimitar, the bow and the ax, and you can also get tattoos for those achievements. Out there and the text really supports this idea okay you can also see in these ancient cultures some cultures reviled against those who were tattooed they looked down on them they saw them as second-class citizens they thought the practice uh, represented something awful and unclean and you actually see that happening here in Jacob okay which is the prophet calling them on that Tattoos, as you know, even today are very difficult to remove, but that was particularly true back then. And so anytime there's a miraculous disappearance of them, uh, that would be noteworthy, and it certainly wouldn't be something that happened every time someone joined the Nephites, but it may have happened on occasion, that suddenly your sign that you're laying the night, thank heavens, because of the Lord, helps it disappear for you in a miraculous way. You would write that down in your records. Now, why don't we see the word tattoo in the Book of Mormon? That's a great question. Well, let me help you. I study language. The development of language is one of my research interests. And so I do look at English, and now we got words. And it's been fun to go back and look at Reformed Egyptian and be taught by experts what's happening with Reformed Egyptian. But as you know, the Nephites wrote in Reformed Egyptian, but Egyptian does not have a word for tattoo. And if you're going to reform the language, you're going to struggle because you don't have any words to pick from. And so what we would suggest here is that why are we using these weird phrases, skin of blackness or darkness of their skins? Because there's no character to use for tattoo, and so you're trying your best to create something that indicates something. The other explanation we can give you is Egyptian characters often represent a whole phrase. A sentence, a couple of sentences. That's why they use them to write on the plates, is because you can say a lot in a short amount of time. And potentially, the, the uh, character the Nephites came up with might translate literally into English a skin of blackness when that isn't what they meant. That might be what it means literally. And those of you that do anything with languages, you know some words in some languages don't translate well. <laughs> and you're struggling to say what is that in German, what is that in English, and there's no English equivalent. So we might be having just an equivalency issue with that. Also, the word you're so familiar with today, tattoo, came in the Western languages in the 1760s thanks to Captain James Cook, who went on all those great expeditions. He went to Tahiti, and this is the first time he sees tattoos, and he had no word to use. When you read his journals, you see him struggling to describe them. Okay, he uses a phrase where he says they introduced blackness under their skin, which is really interesting when you think <laughs> of what the Book of Mormon says. So what did he do? He took the Tahitian word, ta ta or ta tao, and just made it English, tattoo. <laughs> Brought it back with him and introduced it to Europe, and every European language uses the word tattoo now. It's quite amazing what he did there. Now, what you might not know is tattoos were just not something people were familiar with. And in 1835, five years after the Book of Mormon was translated, this guy, James O'Donnell, uh, O'Connell, sorry, uh, came, he was fully tattooed, he was an Irishman who got fully tattooed while he was living in the Pacific, South Pacific, and he, he came to the U.S. to show off his tattoos in 1835 which is one of the first times people have actually seen them or been introduced to the word. Joseph may have not ever known this word mm. prior to translating the Book of Mormon. So he may not have had it to use in his vocabulary, so we stick with a literal translation. So there's lots of fun things for you to think about uh, here with it. Now, the last thing I need to do with you is this loathsome word. What does that mean in a covenant context? While well, we come over to 2 Nephi 5.22, we tend to read this on the back of the skin of blackness, and then we misunderstand the word there and the way that the phrase is written in the Book of Mormon. So let me just read it to you what it says here, and thus saith the Lord God, I will cause that they shall be loathsome unto thy people, and that's where everybody stops, because they've read the skin of blackness, and suddenly we're going to go, oh, now they're unattractive. But you don't read the next part. Say they shall repent of their iniquities. Let's reverse it, and I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Save, which means accept. They repent of their iniquities. They shall be wholesome unto the people. This has nothing to do with appearance, and everything to do with behavior. And so we need to be a little more careful students of the book we're reading, and not connect things that are not connected, and then ignore the ones that are connected. This is behavioral. So let's go back and look at our covenant. We know what happened to this. We know what happened to this. What's the only one left? Keeping this is all about behavior. Okay, they're going to be loathsome to the Nephites unless they change their behavior. Those of you that know, what laws were the Nephites living at the time? of Moses. Moses. What kind of behavioral codes do they have? A lot. Loads. Okay. <laughs> dietary codes and all sorts of codes that are going to make the Lamanites and Nephites very different from each other and make the Nephites look at the Lamanites, what are you doing with your food? You're no longer obeying the dietary codes and suddenly you can see we have a little bit of um, antipathy towards behaviors here, okay, which is really nice in the covenant thing. I also want to help you with one more legal meaning of the word loathsome. Uh, for those of you that don't know, what does it mean if we in, in define it? Here's your synonyms. Disgusting, painful, abhorrent, detestable. This one's very important because in legal language, hate and love have a different meaning in the suzerain treaty than they normally do. So let me teach them to you. In a covenant context, hate signifies the status of someone who's broken their covenant. So when the suzerain writes about the vassal, they'll say the vassal hated me. You'll see that in the Old Testament all the time. The Lord says, you know, the third and fourth of they that hate me. It's not an emotional statement. This is a legal statement. How are they hating me? They're violating the covenant. Love is the same. In legal speak, love means to keep my covenant. And the Lord uses this in the Old Testament too the generations of those that love me. This is not an emotion. It's those who keep their covenants. Really quick, I'd love all of you to come with me to heal in 15. I want to show you a Lamanite prophet who's using this language. Okay, it's really amazing, especially it's coming from a Lamanite, that he knows his covenant language and he's using this, the speech uh, for the Nephites who would understand this. So you know the story. Laban, or, uh Samuel the Lamanite comes and he's standing up on the wall preaching to the Lamanites, or Nephites, and he's teaching them the difference between the two. I'd like you to start with verse 4, and then we'll look at verse 3, just so you can get the impact. Look what he says about his own people. But behold, my brother, the Lamanites, hath he, God, hated, because their deeds have been evil continually. Of course God doesn't hate the Lamanites. You just saw how much mercy he's going to extend to them. This is legal language. He hates them because they're outside of the covenant. Now jump up and look at the middle of verse three. It'll we'll start with the phrase, for behold. For behold, they, the Nephites, have been a chosen people of the Lord. Yea, the people of the Lord hath he loved. Largely, the Nephites have been in the covenant. Not always, but they tried to keep the covenant. And you see this legal language here. It's not emotional. We know God loves all of his people. But when we're in covenant language, we're going to use it slightly differently. Outside, inside. So when we understand this, the Lamanites return from a state of loathsomeness, or being outside the covenant, by repenting and renewing their covenant. If you keep reading in Helaman, you'll see the Lamanites described as people who are keeping their covenants. And why did they get there? because the Nephites went out and taught them the Gospel. So, as a person inside the covenant, my job is to reach out to those outside the covenant and bring them in through missionary work, which is what Nephites always try to do and what we try to do. So, how cool is the covenant lens with this? What did I hope that you learned? The three stipulations in the covenant, Laman and Lemuel, violated all of them. They first decided they didn't want to be part of the kingdom anymore. They didn't want to follow the prophet. They made that choice, and they had a right to. Everyone can make that choice. But when I make choices, I get consequences. The Lord clearly outlined the consequences in the covenant treaty. And when I don't follow the prophet, I also get natural consequences for not having the advice and the counsel and the blessing that comes from blackness I suggested to you is a way the layman and layl rejected community that they should have been working for, and they wanted a physical mark to show that they didn't want to be part of it. They're surrounded by people who probably know how to do tattooing. It's a brilliant way to do it, an easy way to do it. And lastly, why are they low? So not because the. Nephites don't love their brother and they always describe like as their brother and they clearly love them. But in the legal language, they would be seen as outside. The covenant, why? They're rejecting the commandments and we need to teach them and bring them back. In. So brothers and sisters, I hope this has been helpful to you. Um, I love it because it just fits with the whole Book of Mormon and it fits with the whole purpose of the plan kind of salvation. But I do want to just open up the last few minutes we have. Okay, I'm going to repeat your question, so say it nice and loud, and then I'll say it for everyone can hear about... Yes. Tattooing was all around the children of Israel. In fact, in about 400 um, B.C.-ish is when you first started seeing it appear in the records of the scriptures to prohibit tattooing in the law of Moses. So it's just a little after Lehi leaves Jerusalem that that happens, but clearly it's a problem, and and they write down the prohibition, we don't want you participating in these practices. They're very idolatrous, and they're often uh, related to breaking covenants and things. So, yes, it's all over here. We've already looked at that verse. And we know what the cursing means, so we're just going to leave that out. But I'm going to put a mark on them. Now notice, this is a direct quote from the Lord. What does he call it? I will set a mark on yeah. them. He does not identify it as a skin of blackness. Why do you think that is? Because it's not up to him to decide what it is. Who gets to decide what it is? They do. They did. And so later on when it happens, tattooing takes a long time, by the way. So if a little bit show up with tattoos, is going to be a little long. Uh The Nephites seem to be identifying it as a skin of blackness later, but the Lord himself never identifies that. But he's certainly going to provide a way for them to have their desires because that's what he does. We get what we want, good or evil, and the Lord will provide this way, but he doesn't identify it uh, with the same terminology as the Nephites do later. Mm-hmm. So I don't think the Lord is deciding what it is. He's just going to provide a distinguishing option, and they choose what it is. Yeah. Well, the Amlicites, the Markings yes. on it, would be, be oh, I to mean, Totally. So if you guys just look back so we can just show you the Amlicites. Coming down in 3, look at verse 4. The Amlicites want to become Lamanites. So what do they do? They mark themselves with red in their foreheads after the manner of the Lamanites. The phrase after the manner suggests there's a Lamanite style tattoo that you can copy. But what difference do they make? They make yes. Why would they do that? To differentiate Because we want to be Lamanites, but we still want to be recognized as Amcites. That's that tribal thing. So we're going to get accepted by the Lamanites by adopting their their form. But we're going to do a different color so that everyone knows we're still sites. It's quite interesting when you start seeing that. Yeah, please. So how can you explain the fact that their skins are actually that darker color? We don't believe that they are. You don't think the Indians have a darker color than white? No, because the people from the Middle East already have a darker color skin. That's why the, the racial reading doesn't work. Nephi's not a white person. People from the Middle East have Darker skin already. So pictures. Yeah. yeah. So we don't think they have darker skin to begin with. They're just they're people. Plus, we don't think the lands that they're coming to are empty. So they're surrounded by people of all sorts of different kinds of races. So the racial reading just does not work in the context either. Okay. I have a friend who's Indian, and she's like asking like you think about? Of course, this would be very offensive. The covenant. So so sometimes the Lamanites are actually inside the covenant more than the nephites are, and it's all about agency and choice and covenant keeping. Which oh, we get that because that's what this has always been about and always will be about. So this other reading is just a little uncomfortable. Yeah, I hear. Okay, sorry. She's asking about temple ordinances and if the Nephites are having any kind of eternal type of ordinances. So, two answers I have for you. Prior to the coming of Christ, what law were the Nephites living? Law of Moses. Law of Moses. So, what were they doing in their temples? Um, Animal sacrifices. When Christ comes, though, what's he going to do? Get rid of the law of Moses and probably introduce them to... And so, they have a temple, right? And so, we're going to Right? Now, there are some scholars, and, and you can go and read them, who believe that maybe prior to Christ, the Nephites were doing both types. They read the text quite temple-oriented. It's quite fascinating. Um, but I'll just keep it simple. Law of Moses, Jesus Christ, then we're going to raise it up. But there are some people who think that maybe the temples had a dual purpose under the Nephites, and that they did have ordinances prior to the law uh, of Christ coming but you have to read their arguments and see if they convince you goes away with generation because they're no longer And why when we suddenly enforce Nephi? Okay, so he's asking, is this why later, in um, fourth Nephi time, we no longer have any of the blackness because we're no longer tattooing our people? Well, of course, because under the Zion society, you don't have any ites. That's one of the cool things about it is we've gotten rid of marks. We're just children of Christ. But then, when the society crumbles, what's the first thing they bring back? Lamanites. They bring back ites. And what are you going to do to indicate you're an ite? Start the whole tattooing thing all over again. Okay, so that's very good. You'll see a period of that. Okay, I've got one more minute. Let me go right here in the middle. Yeah.
1: they um
0: the word that they used in okay the the hebrew word for tattoo there's not really a hebrew word they used a phrase of cutting yourself but they tend to adopt the language of people around them so the word in latin and in greek is stigmata or mark isn't that interesting so that might bring us back a little to maybe understand the lord's perspective a little but anyway Thank you, brothers and sisters. I think, think about really those who to themselves now. You. Um, <laughs>